0: I'm Michael Burton. I'm from the University of Oxford's Faculty of Music, um, and I'm here with David Kennelly from History and um, Susan validaris from English. Um, we've been talking um, uh, about our um, exhibition staging history, um, and which is on at the Bodden Library at the moment, uh, and it's the an accompanying book with the same title but given dates 1780 to 1840, um, and. One of the things that the exhibition looks at is the notion of staging or restaging real events um, uh, for the theatrical audience. Um, and David, you've been mentioning the restaging or recreation, if you like, of the coronation of George the Fourth. Um, clearly, people who couldn't go to it then got to see it.
1: Yes, it's one way of bringing um, current events, which are quite, in some ways, quite exclusive. Um, to uh, a broader public who could then enjoy the spectacle of it um, and, and, in this case, uh, witness the lavishness of the ceremony um, and, and, it's, and its associated grandeur. So it, it, what's interesting is that it, some, in some cases here in the, uh, the, the exhibition in the book, we're looking at history that is very recent, you know, an event that was only a few months or weeks earlier. Um, the same is true of the Siege of Gibraltar. That first staging is only um, a year or so. Or even a week or so after the uh, events have happened, Um, but um, the uh, we're also looking at other plays that are staging much more distant history as well. So things like Henry VIII um, uh, and the Shakespeare tragedies, and and so on. So there's a, a sense of how you create distance. How you, in terms of historical time, how, how how far removed you make it feel in the way you do the costuming, and the way you do the scenery, because up until this mid-18th century period, people have been doing Shakespeare in contemporary dress, 18th century dress, but the, one of the things that we uh, were examining in, in and that Ellen uh, Lockhart discusses in her chapter in the book is about um, uh, attempts by um, theatre managers and then later people, people like James Robinson Planchet to... Um, develop accurate historical costume or what, what they felt was accurate historical costume to give that sense of authenticity as well so
0: just going back to the siege of gibraltar i mean that that actually the, the, the first one um uh when it's staged um is indeed just after those the early events have happened but the interesting thing about that is that of course that the first uh, of the two dramas that are in the stage in the siege siege cabinet in fact was um, written and staged before the siege had been won it was mm. in fact so it's almost as though there was an attempt to um build up um, you know hopes that this that this was what would happen and, and one of the interesting things about that is if you th- if you think going back to the theme of the exhibition and the way history is used to recreate um, history within a drama is that they don't really have a hero. There's not really a hero of mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the the siege at that point, and they turn to Wolfe and the siege of Quebec. Um, and the, uh, the there's a tune uh, in it um, now stands the gla- stand around the glass, my boys. I think mm-hmm. it is uh, several sort of. Um, uh, uh, versions of the title but um, it's the one that even the libretto for the Siege of Gibraltar claims was sung the night before the Battle of Quebec and so General Wolfe becomes the, uh, the hero of that first um, piece.
2: Mm-hmm. when it's still uncertain what well, the outcome will be, as you say, and also 1780, a year in which the American War is not going very well for the British. Mm-hmm. So you need to have this hope of a triumphal. <laughs> <say, yeah>.
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it, it's attempting to second-guess history and create bits of it along, along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be interesting to know whether they what would have happened if the siege of Gibraltar had gone the other way, and whether or not the peace would have been politely buried.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think so. One of the things that that picks up on is the way in which this process of staging history is, is very closely connected to ideas of national identity, ideas of patriotism, um, and, and that sense of the political. And that comes out very strongly in some of the other aspects of the exhibition um, and in the book, particularly um, the chapters uh, where the, we're exploring American Stagings of of American history in Rip Van Winkle um, and in the Pioneer Patriot uh, melodrama. And that they, um, one of the interesting ideas that um, uh, was being proposed there is the way in which it's in part about remembering a certain past, but it's also about forgetting uncomfortable aspects of the past. In p- those cases, particularly um, the history of uh, American slavery in what was supposedly the land of the free, this way in which mm. you um, uh, remember history selectively um, comes through very strongly in some of the American examples that we've got uh, here, um, I think. Mm. I mean. But, uh, Pizarro, of course, is one of the
0: more amazing things. I mean, we've we've, we've discussed it already in one way or another because it's such a it's a key piece and it's also so wildly popular. Um, It's a real blockbuster. Yeah, it was a a blockbuster. Um, What did the public see in that? I mean, how how did they read the piece?
2: It's a play about the 16th century conquest of Peru and Almost immediately, reviewers are recognizing that it's a play about much more than that as well. Mm. So they're suggesting that it's an allegory for understanding the war against France. So the Revolutionary Wars are referring to here. And for thinking about how it is that when we think about Republican France as a threat, that a villain such as Francisco Pizarro might actually stand in for Napoleon Bonaparte and that the Peruvians who are defending their homeland might actually be seen as representations of British citizens and their endeavour to resist um, Napoleonic um, expansionism, Napoleonic aggression. So it's interesting in that respect but it's also a play which is being read in a host of different ways. Mm -hmm. So because Sheridan is already parliamentarian in this period, he's recycling some of his political speeches and some of them speak to a corruption of the East India Company so Perhaps Warren Hastings is the villain yeah, of this yes, piece yeah, and not yes, actually yes. Napoleon Bonaparte. It's interesting that you mentioned slavery earlier, David, because William Wilberforce had him been to the theater for 20 years and he broke that um, period of absence in order to go watch Pizarro mm. and was reportedly very satisfied with what he saw. Right. So perhaps you could also read that as a play uh, that was concerned slavery, with e- really serious humanitarian mm-hmm. appeals mm-hmm. about how the Peruvians are being treated and mm-hmm. exploited. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is interesting the way in which there's quite distant history, as you as you describe it. For instance, becomes much more proximate. Um, has that feeling of urgency.
0: Well, it's been reused, hasn't it? I mean, I think that's one of the that's mm. one of the key things about um, that. Um, rather like the exiles' history has been reused. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing. I mean, we, we're not really in, in the case of the siege of Gibraltar. We're not really reusing history, are we? It's it's an It's almost. Um, a way of dramatizing certain things that will appeal to the public, and what is part of the appeal and in fact is the same sort of appeal with the, uh, in the with the death of captain Cook, is that they're contemporary events, and so you can see some of those uh, you know those events on stage but David, what happens with the um, uh, Hofer um tell the Tyrol
1: well, that too is in a sense a, 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 a example of what we were talking about with Pizarro, where the same text, the same play, the same set of music, can acquire um, very different meanings depending on where it's being performed and to whom it's being performed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this case, in the case of Hoffer, um, it was first performed in, in 1830 at Drury Lane. Um, it was one of um, Blanchet's creations, we mentioned here earlier, with the historical costumes. But it's set in the Tyrol in the Alps during the Napoleonic Wars, um, and depicted um, an uprising led by um, a local innkeeper against the no- occupying Napoleonic forces that had occupied the Tyrol and um, captured it and taken it uh, uh, away from Austrian control, which was uh, the people who had ruled it before. And um, the way it was represented at Drury Lane was as a, a very sort of straightforward, patriotic and loyalist drama, a, a drama that was about... Um, the ordinary pe- peasants, the ordinary Tyrolese peasants, rising up in support of their rightful monarch, the Emperor of Austria, against their um, the illegitimate uh, occupying forces of um, Napoleon and Bavaria, um, the, the ally of, of France. Um, And that was important at that moment because uh, it's a period of the the reform crisis. There's lots of popular unrest from um, Britain's own labouring classes um, who are calling for wider uh, reform of the the parliamentary franchise. Um, It's also a time of uprisings in the countryside with the swing rights, captain swing rights. And so there is lots of... Uh, (laughs) peasant violence going on in Britain at the time and so the ruling classes who are going to sitting in boxes in Drury Lane are quite anxious about what the the future might hold and how the people will respond will they stay loyal to the the monarchy Um, so the the drama there is part of uh, assuaging those anxieties and so it requires quite conservative uh, overtones But what's then interesting is that um, 11 years later, in 1841, um, this same opera, one scene from it at least, um, crops up as part of a uh, chartist uh, protest in in, in 1841 in Bradford, um, outside in a a, um, uh, a sort of... uh, uh, a rally uh, where, which has been led by Fergus O'Connor, the leader of the movement. Um, the the Chartists were calling for widespread um, uh, reform of the Constitution. They wanted um, universal manhood suffrage. They wanted uh, e- uh, secret ballots, um, equal constituencies, uh, and payment of MPs so that ordinary working men could become an MP and, and that would be a feasible thing. So it was very radical uh, for the time. Uh, and they were using Hoffa as a um, uh, in a very different tradition, uh, interpreting him as someone who uh, had led a republican uprising who wanted not just to be free from Napoleonic control but also free from the control of all monarchs altogether and set up mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Tyrol as its own little Swiss canton-style independent republic of self-government. Self-governance. So that's, he enters this um, canon of Chartist heroes uh, along with people like William Tell mm-hmm. uh, and other patriotic heroes of that kind um, in a way that lends this same work, the same um, music, with music it was Rossini's uh, music from Guillaume Tell, um. A very different political charge. It makes it much more uh, radical—a call for something quite different to what its original intention had been. So. And in yeah.
0: fact, that, that that leads right to one of the one of the loveliest objects in the exhibition, which is the um, not very large but really rather lovely Six Points Charter, um, mm. which is a very famous um, thing. But in fact, I've never seen a real one before the show. And I mean, it's been lent, lent for us by lent to us by Nuffield College. It's mm. a it's a lovely thing.
1: Yeah, it yeah. just shows some of the context the political context for in which some of this history could be remembered and, and, and used and even though it's a uh, an alpine setting it's a Tyrolese setting it's something that the british are seeing themselves in if you like even if it's someone else's history it's still something that is meaningful for the uh, the british they're seeing parallels all the time between their own political situation and that of other nations around the world Yeah,
2: and I think it's almost necessary to be in search for those parallels because the Licensing Act, which essentially means that the theatres are censored um, from performing any controversial political, religious, or sexual narrative, means Mm -hmm. that audiences do have to get accustomed to those allegorical readings because they won't see those represented directly on stage. That wouldn't be allowed. Mm -hmm. So they have to be quite savvy in how they interpret this kind of Mm -hmm. historical action to recognize that, yes, it is current. It does speak to their present-day concerns.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and I, uh, without uh, uh, that's absolutely right. although I would say that they've had to do it for quite some time, and, yeah. and which I think is quite important. It's quite important because, of course, you can assume that the audience will see these things because mm-hmm. you could you could look at it and say, well, is that just a 21st century interpretation? But I think the reality is that there's such a pattern of that,
2: and we um, have reviews that give us direct give evidence us, of that as well. <laughs> yeah. So mm. the Licensing Act is introduced in 1737, so audiences are well versed by in this by um, the early 19th century. Yeah, exactly. And we have reviews which tell us that audiences are clapping and booing at the moments where the historical action feels most appropriate mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lovely little anecdote about the reception history of Pizarro where they have sailors um, watching the play and this is in December 1799. And there's one particular sailor who makes um, his way into a review in one of the newspapers because um, he supposedly grumbles forth his indignation every time he sees the character Pizarro and is just unable to feel satisfied by anything until Pizarro actually dies. And that's something (laughs) which isn't um, in um, Kotzebue's version of the play, which is what Sheridan is adapting. So Sheridan himself is um, looking to um, another, another source. And Sheridan writes this conclusion for his play as a way of perhaps allowing audiences to celebrate um, the fact that there is revenge for Rola's death and Rola is a great Peruvian hero. And he's also offering a model for heroic agency in the same way that you're suggesting Andrew's offer Hop- is as well.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, drifting slightly away from the world of real history. I mean, if we mm. turn to Walter Scott, who, of course, mm. uh, occupies <laughs> quite a, um, a large ca- uh, case toward the end of the show mm. uh, and also um, uh, a chapter um, in the book, um, we've got somebody there who... essentially created history in order to tell whatever tales he want uh, uh, what he wants um and the um the very first thing in the in that cabinet is in fact a um, scott's uh, volume of scott's minstrelsy of the borders which is the um uh, the collection of things that where he began to rediscover and to a certain extent reinvent the ballad mm. as a means of storytelling, and as we move along um, the, the cabinet, we then find that the uh, in Marmion, um, L- Lady Heron is actually listening to the ballad about um, uh, Lockenvar, uh, uh, and you can you can see this new mode of storytelling becoming a, a way of. Um, communicating a sort of rather long, often a very long tale to the to the public, mm. it's astonishing how that takes off. I mean, it's mm. partly, I suppose, because the ballad tunes are fairly simple and the verses are repetitive, and yeah, you know, therefore they have appeal. But opera after opera ends up with at least two ballads in it, and yeah, you know, Sims Reeves wants a ballad when he performs, um, but also it, it, he begins as, as he, as, he work, as it works on as he works through later to. to Essentially, invent a whole new sort of historical world based on this, on these, on, this, on these ideas. I mean, the the um, uh, I wouldn't say they were my favourites, but the um, there the are rather stunning row of coloured um, uh, uh, prints we have in the show of uh,
1: character
2: Scott's portraits. characters. Yes, mm-hmm. character There's portraits. So yeah, <laughs> and I think that's lovely actually because Scott is so commercially successful um, as both um, poet. And and a novelist that it doesn't take very long for his works to be adapted for the stage. And what he's doing is that he's bringing an in invented character with real events and blending the personal with the public. Mm. And that's something which I think is actually very interesting to um, audiences in this period.
1: Yes, it's using history as a sort of rich canvas backdrop the mm. sort of Jacobite uprising is what's going on in the background and provides this context backdrop for a love story uh-huh. that then grabs the heart and mm. <laughs> draws audiences in that way and mm. it's something that you still see people doing with historical fiction now they say, you know it's set in a r- recognisable time period, something that is based on research and facts but it's mm-hmm. the story itself the characters involved are uh, innovative, new and, and not real in a, in a traceable sense but they capture something of the age in yeah. that, the, the view of Scott. Or it's this blending which I think
2: we see happen more and more in the period. Yeah. I
0: mean, I think it's very, I mean, because Scott himself has become unfashionable, it's very easy to get just how influential this all was. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, the um, the, the major um, intervention or one of the major interventions of um, Britain into the into opera culture on the continent is to introduce Walter Scott mm-hmm. as um, a, a, a source for operas by Don Zetti yeah. um, and Bellini and so on. Um, but I also think it's quite astonishing that there is there is hardly a publication of Scott's, and certainly none of the novels, where by the end of the year, after of the year in which this is published, there is a dramatised version, usually an opera, mm. somewhere on on the London stage. Yeah. And of course, when you get Ivanhoe, there are sort of seven or something. Yeah, so, competing yeah. yeah. versions of the same story, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Straight, yes. straight
1: um, away, really quickly, they're, they're, they're adapted, aren't they? Yes. 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 That I, the, I, don't, I don't
0: know, I mean, do we know much about what Scott thought about these? I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I hear that the
2: Richard Terry adaptations were considered versions of a terrified… Oh, really? um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: mm. Yes. Yes. we have to sort of insert more songs and add the music, and that creates a different feel, I suppose, in making something that was a novel into a, a play. There is a process of yeah. staging that actually has to translation to, to a new yeah, medium. Make it,
2: make well, it it, I
0: mean, well, it's interesting also that there are other there are other some com- there are other competing dramas at that point, including the, uh, one of the stage versions of Frankenstein, um, mm-hmm. which involves, uh, in fact, a thing set uh, a scene set in Scotland at the end with the avalanche, mm-hmm. um, and you can and Scotland throughout has presented is presented as this, this rather sort of mysterious place north of the border. And I think that has another, um, you know, real um, uh, 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 attraction for the public. And, and when, and when um, uh, de Freyshoots arrives in 1824, I think it is that, which of course is the, its popularity um, with the Wolf Glen scene and all the um, uh, mysterious and uh, um, magic bits of it, um, suddenly uh, make that even more popular.